Today, we continue our message series in the book of 1 Peter, entitled Rumors of Hope. While Peter was spreading rumors of hope with his readers, rumors of grace and God's love, uh, that God chose them and God filled them and was working through them, some of those threatened by the gospel and irritated by Christians spread malicious gossip. They spread the rumor that Christians were atheists because they wouldn't worship all the gods in the Greco-Roman pantheon. Some whispered that Christians were cannibals, eating flesh and drinking blood in their communion sacrifices. The rumor spread that Christianity was a cult that separated family members and friends and disturbed civil, civil peace with their talk of another king and kingdom. And the constant rejection and abuse implicating Christians was intended to shame them, to make them feel they were bad, unworthy people. God doesn't care about you. God didn't choose you. You're not doing God's work. Now, Peter was concerned that if these Christians felt shame, they would, they would feel unworthy of God's love and then deny Christ and return to their former way of life. Now, shame is powerful. It's a powerful emotion that shapes the way we interact with the world. Author Brene Brown defines shame as an intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. With shame, we don't have a problem. We are the problem. Unresolved guilt, embarrassment, discouragement, and depression can lead to feelings of shame. Shame can be learned from powerful people in our lives who train us to seek approval and feel shame if we don't receive it. Shame may arise from taking responsibility for things that we're not responsible for, or fixating on what is right and wrong, uh, becoming obsessive moralizers. Shame can come through compulsively comparing ourselves with others. Criticism by comparison, we never measure up. And shame is, in fact, the root of discrimination, labeling people as problems because of their skin color, their sexual orientation, or religious beliefs. Shame makes a person feel like an outcast or a stranger in their own skin, which is how some uh, have described their experiences of racism. Now, we are seeing a generation of black Americans reject the shame directed toward them and the unworthiness attached to them and reclaiming their dignity. Now, it's important to distinguish between guilt and shame. Guilt is adaptive and helpful. It's the feeling of dissonance that arises when we fail to live up to our values, our core beliefs, our conscience, uh, and can lead to, that can lead to confession and, and change. And so feeling guilt due to our sin and confessing it, it renews our, our experience of God's forgiveness, and it's part of the normal Christian life. However, shame is rigid and unhelpful. It creates a distortion zone between us and the world that extends to our relationship with God. And if these Christians believe the rumors being spread about them, they would feel worthless and act out of their sense of unworthiness. The clarity Christ brought to their lives, created in God's image, loved as God's children, forgiven and free through Christ, no matter their race, class, gender, or past, would be replaced by the confusion and despair of life before Christ. And this is why Peter has written so passionately about the virtue of unjust suffering, walking in Christ's footsteps, 
unashamed and unafraid. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 through 19, Peter reveals, first of all, that there is no shame sharing Christ's sufferings. There's no shame sharing Christ's sufferings. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, it says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Now, if you read the Bible, you'll soon see that doing God's will is no guarantee that we will escape suffering. The children massacred by Herod in Bethlehem in his attempt to kill the infant Jesus illustrates powerful people's typical response to God's work in the world. Herod reacted to the news that the Messiah was born not by rejoicing and maybe sending uh, gifts to the baby shower, but by doing all he could to eliminate a perceived rival. Like First Peter's audience, the slaughtered babies of Bethlehem and the parents who loved them suffered, not because they'd done anything wrong, uh, but because someone rejected Jesus and felt threatened by God's good news. <clears throat> Peter says we shouldn't be at all surprised at this. In fact, we should expect it. Unbelievers are surprised by our behavior, but don't be surprised by theirs. This is the mindset Jesus had throughout his earthly sojourn. He knew human nature better than anyone. And so we can learn from him and set our expectations accordingly and prepare for what will surely come. Now, one of the most important exercises I do with premarital couples is identifying expectations. I ask each person to identify 20 expectations that they have for marriage and they have for their marriage partner. Everything from how they expect to be treated, uh, dividing up chores in the household, um, the standard of living that they expect. And as each shares their list, their potential partner responds in one of three ways. Um, the first is a C. They can check C, which stands for cinch. Uh, in other words, that expectation, no problem, can do. The S, the next one, is, stands for sweat. And, and that means uh, I agree to try, but this will not be easy for me to do, but I'll try. And then there's N, which means no way, this is not going to happen. Now, identifying and agreeing on expectations is important because unrealistic expect expectations set us up for disappointment. Now, I've worked with couples who are actually functioning well in their marriage, but were unhappy because their expectations weren't being met. And at that point, I half kiddingly joke, the key to a happy life and happy marriage is lower expectations. But, well, the fact is, there is some truth there. Now, Peter says that a realistic expectation for anyone living an authentic Christian life is that they will encounter fiery trials that test faith. And so don't think it's a strange thing. The term for fiery, it's pyrosis in, pyrosis in Greek, pyro. Uh, we get pyro from that. Describing an ordeal that puts us in, in the forge for proving. And this fiery ordeal, like Daniel's friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who were thrown in the fiery furnace in Daniel chapter 3, it's recorded. Um, this fiery ordeal is a test of loyalty to God, which will either prove 
one's faith or expose the lack of it. And like a fire that melts down metal and separates pure gold from contaminants and additives, suffering strips away externals and reveals who we really are. There's an old story about a silversmith's apprentice watching the master work. And she watched as he heated silver uh, by holding the bar and the fire uh, to burn away impurities. And the apprentice asked, well, how do you know when the silver is fully refined? Uh, And the master replied, when I see my image in it. Now, Peter's point is that we can expect fiery ordeals because God is refining his image in us. And these ordeals will continue until his his image is clearly seen in us. Now, Peter says to expect not only unjust suffering, but the blessing that comes with it. And Jesus spoke of this in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, it says, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, Christians share in Christ's suffering and Christ's victory. And so be glad and rejoice. There is joy now, but greater joy to come when Christ is revealed on that last day. And the blessing is in living a a cruciform life shaped by the cross, shaped by unjust suffering uh, in the manner of our Lord. There's no shame in unjust suffering in the pattern of the Lord Jesus. Now, the Christian life, Peter is saying, just in order to set expectations properly for these Christians. The Christian life, it is a pilgrim life. And a pilgrim takes each experience that enters life and examines it for what it can teach, how it can shape, what it means about life with God in this fallen world. And pilgrims are not tourists. Uh, Tourists looking for a good time, uh, going from one uh, wonderful experience to the next. The posture of a pilgrim reflects realistic expectations that keep us from getting knocked off balance by the slings and arrows of this world. As pilgrims, we move purposely, learning from each experience, not tourists living for the high points and rejecting the rest. Spiritual growth requires, and spiritual growth defined as the reflection of the Lord Jesus Christ in our lives. It requires a long obedience in the same direction, an extended walk down the right path, a growing learning relationship apprenticed to our master, Jesus Christ. Friedrich Nietzsche in Beyond Good and Evil said this, the essential thing in heaven and earth is that there should be obedience in the same direction. There thereby results and has always resulted in the long run, something that has made life worth living. So there's no shame sharing Christ's suffering. And Peter goes on to say there's no shame bearing Christ's name. There's no shame bearing Christ's name. 1 Peter 4, 14 through 16, it says, If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer... It should not be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God 
that you bear that name. Now, in every age, people who have taken Christ's name and identified as Christians have become targets of slander or hatred. The term for insulted used here has the idea of ridicule uh, or of of blasphemy uh, ultimately directed toward Christ. Uh, Jesus said they're blaspheming uh, my name, not your name. And blasphemy means to deny the identity or power of someone or something. Blaspheming Christ is denying that he is the perfect son of God come to save us. And the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting the Spirit's witness that Jesus is uh, the son of God come to save us. But those ridiculed for their faith in Christ, they do not blaspheme the Spirit, but the promise here is that the Spirit rests on them because they believe the Spirit's message about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when we suffer in Christ's name, there is this comfort that the Holy Spirit rests upon us. And in Mark 13, 11, it says, whenever you, Jesus said, whenever you're arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will speak through you. The Holy Spirit rests upon you. Now, Peter has already pointed out that some of his readers uh, had a questionable past, which he warned them not to revisit by becoming a criminal or thief or murderer. And and surely that much was obvious. But he also warned them not to be meddlers, not to be mischief makers. The term he used is only used here in the New Testament. And it's a compound of uh, the Greek words for alien and overseer, uh, overseer or bishop. And it has the idea of looking into things that don't concern you, alien to you, um, being a busybody. And so Peter says we're not uh, to declare ourselves the bishop in other people's affairs. We're not here to tell other people how to live their lives. We may share the good news of the gospel, but we leave it at that. And Peter warns Christians to focus on themselves and not try to legislate morality for others. Just share the good news. And social rejection for being an interfering nuisance uh, isn't suffering for Christ's sake. On the other hand, people ridiculed for being named with Christ should not be ashamed because association with Christ is a badge of honor. Now, in 1 Peter 4.16, we find one of the few instances in the New Testament uh, where we see the term Christian used for a follower of Christ. Uh, It's also used twice in Acts. Um, In both of those instances, from the context, it's used in a derogatory fashion. Um, but according to Acts 11.26, it was in the city of Antioch that believers were first called Christians. In Acts 26.28, uh, we find that Herod Agrippa uses the term while responding to Paul's personal testimony of faith in Christ um, by saying, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian, Paul? And literally, Agrippa was saying, do you expect me to become a little Christ like you? Now, the Roman custom 
was for a person who had been adopted into a noble family to adopt the family name, but with an, with an ending, the I-A-A, uh, I-A-N-U-S. Yan is shortened to Yan. <laughs> That's a funny way to do it. But Christian uh, reflects that. And by the second century, Christian uh, had been adopted as a common self-designation. And adopted into Christ's family, uh, they bear the family name. And at this point, being a Christian was not in itself a punishable offense, but some of their disgraceful practices, like refusing to invoke the gods, were punishable. And if charged, a Christian was given the opportunity to denounce Christ, and if they refused, they were convicted and punished. And Peter says, well, don't be ashamed if you do. If that happens to you, do not be ashamed of the name. You may be slandered, but there is no guilt or shame uh, unless, unless you give in to pressure, unless you renounce Christ, or the experience causes you to become bitter toward God. Uh, that is no longer sinless suffering. Um, but if you hang in there and you follow through all the way and stand for that name, there's no shame in that. In Philippians 1.20, Paul expressed a desire for this. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now as always Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And Paul was talking about carrying through all the way through that fiery ordeal. And Peter wants them to acknowledge their faith in Christ openly and without fear, regardless of of the consequences. And Peter is saying, even though the name Christian is thrown at you by your enemies in derision, wear the name proudly, for that is who you are. Now, our cultural context is not unlike first century Asia Minor in certain ways. There's definitely no home field advantage for Christians here. Uh, in fact, animosity and abuse is often heaped on those who bear uh, the name just for being identified as a Christian. And as a result, there are many uh, what we might call incognito Christians in Silicon Valley, uh, which is problematic. And we'll see this in the next section. But in Matthew 10.32, it says, whoever acknowledges me before others, Jesus says, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. And so whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge them before the Father in heaven. Now, although the world may revile and try to shame Christians for following Jesus, God honors and blesses them. And not only is there no shame in sharing Christ's suffering and no shame in bearing Christ's name, but there's no shame in enduring Christ's judgment. And we see this in 1 Peter 4, 17 through 19. It says, for it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And uh, if it is hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. The reference to God's household, it picks up the image of Christians as living stones in a spiritual house of God. And Peter joins this image with the Old Testament teaching that God's judgment begins with God's own people. I mean, just a reading of the Old Testament prophets 
uh, bears this out. And, and this may seem strange to many Christians today who feel that because of Christ, uh, they are not subject to the judgment of God, much less do any suffering or penalty. And certainly there is unanimous teaching among the New Testament writers that there is no condemnation for those who believe in Christ and that they'll be delivered uh, from the destiny of those who do not respond to the gospel of God. In Romans 8, 1 and 2, Paul said, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here's why. Because through, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives us life has set us free from the law of sin and death. So there's no condemnation. And yet, in Romans chapter 14, verse 10, Paul clearly states that we will all stand before God's judgment seat. Now, we'll be reminded in the next life how we handled suffering in this one. This is Peter's point. Will we have the resolve and the stamina to persevere to the end? Or will the insults and abuse and ostracism drive us to deny Christ, renounce the faith, and return to pagan beliefs and living. Go incognito. Peter reminds us of the difficulty of persevering with a quote from Proverbs, in Proverbs eleven thirty one, which he quotes in this passage uh, in verse 18. If the righteous receive their due on earth, how much more the ungodly and the sinner? But Peter doesn't mean this to be negative. He hopes uh, the accountability will encourage them uh, encourage them to commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. Uh, we follow Christ's example uh, by making this commitment over and over again, committing and trusting uh, the outcome uh, into God's hands and not trying to control it with our own. Psalm 31.5 says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Deliver me, Lord, uh, my faithful God. And this was... This is Jesus, what Jesus quoted from the cross. But it was also the, the prayer, the final prayer of every faithful Jew at night. Uh, their final prayer was, into your hands I commit my spirit, deliver me, Lord, my faithful God. And that should be a daily prayer uh, for each one of us as well. Constantly, daily committing ourselves, recommitting ourselves um, to God's control. And to God's plan. Now, one of the beloved hymns of the church is the old rugged cross. And it's an old one written in 1912, I think. And when my son Ryan was the worship pastor of our Mountain View campus, there was an older woman in the congregation who slipped him $5 every time he let it. <laughs> she really liked the song. And you might remember the lyrics on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross, the emblem of suffering and shame. I will cling to the old rugged cross and exchange it someday for a crown. Now, the song gets it right. The old rugged cross is, it's an emblem of suffering and shame. But while the Romans and Jews who put Jesus to death, to death intended to shame Jesus, there was suffering connected to the cross, but for Christ, no shame. There was no shame in Christ's crucifixion. God, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every other name. And Jesus was crowned as king and received his kingdom as a result of his faithfulness after his resurrection. And now we're part of that. 
And for believers who persevere through unjust suffering, there's no shame in Christ's judgment. There will be no experience of shame in that judgment. Instead, it will be an occasion to rejoice and praise God that we were privileged to experience suffering as we honored the name above all names. As we close. Since the murder of George Floyd on May 25th, our country has been shaken by the rejection of unjust suffering caused by racial prejudice. Now, many of us have struggled to know how to respond. Some of us carry guilt from not responding sooner to endemic social injustice. Others of us are ashamed of the behavior of Christians more committed to social order than social justice and their unwillingness to address the issues beneath the protests. Well, I'll close this morning with a story that I think should inform us and encourage us. And it's from the history of evangelicalism about disturbing social order to bring social justice. And what we now call evangelical Christianity, which has become a pejorative term today, it's not a positive term in the mouths of many, um, but evangelical Christianity, um, what, it, what it is defined is the belief that the gospel is salvation by grace alone through faith in Christ alone based on the authority of the Bible as God's revelation to humanity and good news to be shared with others. Well, this brand of Christianity began to take shape at the height of the international slave trade. The British economy and British colonies in America were deeply rooted in slavery in the mid-19th century. The royal family was invested in slave trading companies. Even the Church of England owned a sugar plantation in the West Indies run on slave labor. Now, this was systemic oppression, a brutal global system of stolen labor. The evangelical Christians were quickly presented with the reality that many people of African descent were responding to the gospel. And so, how should these brothers and sisters in Christ be treated? Now, given the deserved animosity directed toward some who identify as evangelicals today, it might come as a surprise that the founder of the Methodist Church, John Wesley, and one of the founders of evangelicalism, um, was a social justice agitator. Uh, he was one of the first public figures in Britain to call for the abolition of slavery. His reasoning was that human beings were created in God's image, that they fell into sin and rebellion, but are invited to accept God's offer of salvation through Christ, and no human being no human being capable of making such a choice should be treated as less than human. Wesley wrote a pamphlet in 1774, a Thoughts on Slavery, arguing uh, that all human beings have the right to make decisions about their life and spiritual destiny, and no human institution uh, has the right to interfere. Wesley wrote, Give liberty to whom liberty is due, uh, that is, to every child of man, to every partaker of human nature. And he called out slave traders directly, are you a man? And then you should have a human heart. Uh, what is your heart made of? Is there no compassion there? Do you never feel another's pain? The great God will deal with you as you have dealt with them and require all their blood 
at your hands. Now, Wesley defended slave uprisings, which he described as oppressed people asserting their native liberty. And the issues of our time, ranging from the reconstitution of policing to material, health, and educational equity, are the next steps. And these must be addressed, and they must be addressed by creativity and determination, hopefully not by force, but, but people can only move forward when they have their past returned to them. And that seems to be happening now. And so may we as evangelicals today learn from Wesley's passion for human dignity and empathy and, and willingness to pursue justice beyond our comfort zones. Wesley demonstrated that a sincere, consistent commitment to human dignity is more radical than most imagine. And may we who identify with Jesus Christ and his gospel, his good news, be at the forefront of restoring the dignity and sanctity of every human life and any suffering in the course of relieving the suffering of black Americans or LGBTQ people or groups, any groups systematically marginalized, any of our suffering in defending them and in making a better day for them and bringing true equality, any suffering is unashamed suffering. Mm-hmm.